Thanks, Emily. My name's Phil. Um, I'm one of the assistant pastors here, if I've not met you yet. And it's my pleasure to bring God's word to us today. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And we pray, please, would you give us eyes to see your grace revealed here. Please, would you give us hearts to understand, to be encouraged and to love you all the more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the centuries, people have spilt a lot of ink, coffee and probably beer, musing and arguing over this big question. What is the goal of human existence? Why has God placed us on this earth? Maybe that's something you try not to think too much about. Maybe you love chatting about it down the pub. I'm sure we've all thought about it at some stage. And in the details of Exodus chapters 25 to 27, we find something of an answer. And it's a wonderful answer. Why did God place people on this earth? To enjoy rest in his presence. That is why we are here, to enjoy rest in God's presence. How is that possible, though, since our first ancestors ruined their relationship with God by rejecting his loving and generous rule over them? Well, these chapters show, particularly chapter 25, shows that it's possible because God comes to his people and lives among them on a throne of grace. That's where we're going this morning. So let's dig in. These, these chapters, what we read in Exodus chapter 25, may not look as profound on the surface as what I've just claimed. It provides detailed instructions for a tent, a tent complete with ark, lampstand, table, altars for incense and sacrifice, a wash basin, a courtyard, and seemingly a pretty impressive tent because of all the gold and silver and bronze and costly stones and precious fabrics that were going to be involved in the making of it. We saw a list of them, didn't we, at the start of chapter 25, verses 3 to 7. But it's still a tent. So how do, we, how do we see God's purposes in this? We haven't even read all of chapters 25 to 27. And if we did, God doesn't actually tell us the meaning of all of the details of the tabernacle. But there are still words and phrases here and there that give us an indicator of some of the key meanings, significances of this tent and enclosure. And I think one in particular is very clear. Why is Israel instructed to make this tent? Because God wants a holy place where he can live among his beloved covenant people, the people who he has gone to huge lengths to rescue so far in Exodus. So do you see that in chapter 25, verse 5? God wants to build, wants them to build a sanctuary for him. And sanctuary doesn't just mean a place of calm or safety like in modern usage. 
it means a holy place, a set apart place, a place fitting for a holy God who is in every way pure and good with no evil in him. A place worthy of such a holy God. And God wants a sanctuary so he can dwell among his people. He wants to live with them. He wants to be intimate with them. And that's why he commands them to build this tent. Don't forget that Israel is living in the wilderness. It's on their, they're on their way to the promised land. They are living in tents, moving from place to place. And God is going to live in a tent with them as one of them. He wants to be intimate with his people. He didn't just save them so that they could be free from oppression. He didn't just save them to keep his law. He saved them to enjoy loving relationship. And ultimately what God is doing in Exodus is continuing the work of new creation that he has been doing ever since the flood in Noah's day in Genesis chapter six. He is showing now how the barrier of sin that stands between him and all humanity will be broken down. He is showing through this tabernacle the way back into the Garden of Eden, as it were. The place where his people will rest in his presence. And that recreation and resting perhaps isn't so obvious in chapter 25 alone or even chapters 25 to 27. But if we take the whole section from chapter 25 to 31, there are seven times that Moses has written, the Lord said to Moses, the first one is in 25 verse one, you can have a look down at that. But seven times God speaks, just like in Genesis chapter one. And the first six times he is giving them the instructions for this place where heaven meets earth, where he will live among his people. And the seventh time he gives instructions for the Sabbath when he will rest with his people. So the tabernacle is all about God overcoming sin, symbolized partly through the bronze altar where the sacrifices will be made and reversing the fall so that he can be present among his people and give them rest. But... The tabernacle also shows us that that work is not yet complete in Moses' day. That's because the most holy place where God's presence rests over the Ark of the Covenant is shut off from the people and even most of the priests by a curtain with cherubim waven into it. Cherubim being some kind of supernatural angelic being I can't say much more about them than that, I'm afraid. But why cherubim? I, I think that's significant because the only other place that they have appeared so far in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where cherubim are appointed to guard the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve have been evicted. They are there to stop Adam and Eve getting back into the place where God lived among them where God was present. And in Moses' time, that barrier to his presence and to perfect intimacy 
is still in place, symbolized by the curtain. And that's because God had not yet revealed the perfect sacrifice that would take away his people's guilt and shame and uncleanness once and for all. That would only come when the Lord Jesus died upon the cross and the temple of the, uh, uh, the curtain of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two. So the tabernacle is a sign of God's saving work. It is a sign of him reversing the fall, coming to live among his people, giving rest. That work was not complete in Moses' day, but it was still a glorious privilege for Israel to have God present among them in this way. No other nation on earth had had anything quite like that since our first ancestors rebelled. It was also a sign of greater things to come. Now, if you still have questions about why would God choose a tent? Seems a bit mundane. Or what it means for God to be present in just one place when he is outside of space and time, he cannot be confined in creation. Then do ask me afterwards. I would love to chat about that with you. We just don't have time in the sermon now. But suffice to say, the tabernacle is symbolic of God's intention to be present among them, to work among them in a particular way. It's symbolic of how he wants them to experience his presence, his mercy and his rest. Now that we've seen the significance of the tabernacle as a whole, I want to focus on just one aspect of it, on the Ark of the Covenant. This was the most important item in the tabernacle, and that's why God gives the instructions for it first. That's why we read that bit. And it confirms God's gracious intentions to his people in a particularly striking way. And that's what I want to apply to us this morning. So as we read, as we read in chapter 25 and verses 10 to 22, and as you can see in the diagram on your service sheets, the Ark of the Covenant was a sacred wooden chest overlaid with gold inside and outside with this extraordinary solid gold lid with two cherubim on it, one at each end. And Hebrews 9 tells us that everything inside the tabernacle was meant to be a representation of something in God's heavenly dwelling place. And with that in mind, I think we can safely say that the ark and the most holy place represented God's throne room. And the ark served three purposes within that. Firstly, we see in 25 verse 16 that it was a, a royal deposit box where the covenant law, the Ten Commandments, were kept on the two tablets of stone that God was going to write for Moses. Presumably, there was one copy for the people and one copy for God. And these tablets were kept in God's presence at the very centre of the Israelite camp as a testimony to the terms of the relationship between God and his people, the privileges and the responsibilities 
that they had towards each other. God dwelt with his people on the basis of that covenant. And secondly, the lid of the ark was a place of atonement. It's called an atonement cover in verse 17, or a mercy seat if you've got one of the older translations. It was the place where the high priest would come once a year on the day of atonement with the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat to sprinkle on the cover and in front of the cover. And you can read about that in Leviticus 16 later if you want. But this sacrificial blood covered over the priest's sins and the people's sins from the past year. As the animals died in the place of the people, it symbolized the satisfaction of God's right anger at sin. And that blood also cleansed the most holy place so that God could continue to dwell among his people, so that they could continue to have that intimacy with him. So the lid of the ark was a place of atonement. And finally, if you look with me at verse 22, the ark was like the throne from which God ruled his people through his word. Unlike the pagan nations, Israel was not meant to have a human king. And if you read later in 1 Samuel where the Israelites asked for a king, that is why Samuel is so upset about it. God was meant to be their king. And he would rule them from above the Ark of the Covenant through his words, commanding his people in the way they should go. So the Ark was the focal point for God's presence and for God's rule among his people. And it is beautiful because it teaches us something wonderful about God's grace. He had become to Israel like a husband to his wife on the basis of his covenant with the Ten Commandments as its terms. And that in itself, that alone, could spell trouble for Israel when they broke the commandments and broke the covenant, which was effectively committing spiritual adultery against their divine husband. God could divorce them, as it were, on that basis. He could send them away from his presence just as he did Adam and Eve. But that danger was averted, at least for the faithful in Israel. Because God dwelt above his covenant floor on a throne of grace, the atonement cover. He dwelt there in mercy, ready to cover over the sins of the people as they broke the covenant. So every faithful Israelite who made the required sacrifices, depending on them by faith, trusting in God's promises, would be forgiven all their transgressions. They might get caught up in the suffering of the nation as the rest of the nation rebelled against God and turned to idols. But to the faithful, this suffering would only come as refining, perhaps disciplining love. They would not be condemned. So God was present among his people on a throne of grace. And there are lots of ways we could apply this. We could talk about how Jesus became our atonement cover, 
as Paul says in, in Romans 3, verse 25, when God presented him as the, the perfect sacrifice of atonement for sin. We could talk about how God dwells with us even more intimately now through the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' atoning blood. The curtain has been torn in two. God has come out of the most holy place, as it were, and his spirit is in each and every one of his people. We could talk about how we as the church are now God's temple. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we must honour God with our bodies. Our bodies are sacred in a sense. And we could talk about how the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 will be a perfect cube, just like the most holy place of the tabernacle. And that means that in the new creation, we will be invited into God's, God's sort of throne room in perfect intimacy for him, with him forever. We, that will be as good as it gets, as close as it gets. We will see him face to face forever. But I want to focus on just one thing, and that is our experience of God's presence by the Spirit now. I think the ark has something to teach us here. Now, most or all of you will know that there are times when Christians feel very little sense subjectively of God's presence or of, or of intimacy with him. We often feel distant for, from him, as if his love for, for us had grown cold. Now, this might be because we are knowingly, willfully choosing to disobey him. As a result, we experience his loving fatherly discipline. He removes that subjective sense of his presence and intimacy for a while to bring us to repentance. Though, of course, objectively, his love for us has not changed. He is no less present with us because his love is on the basis of Jesus's righteousness and sacrifice, not our performance. We may feel distant simply because we've stopped using the ordinary means of grace that God has appointed for us to enjoy and deepen our relationship with him. Like gathering as a church, like coming to him in prayer like reading his words and spending time with other people who share his spirit and who are therefore equipped to encourage us. But often, I think that we feel distanced and we miss a sense of God's presence and intimacy because of our own doubts and struggles with assurance. We feel overwhelmed by our seemingly never-ending struggles with sin and the seeming fruitlessness of our Christian lives compared to Jesus and the apostles and what they command and talk about in the New Testament. Our lives look so small and like such failures. And we start to wonder how God could be present in the mess and the mundane reality of our lives. Maybe we start to think, surely he must be displeased with this mess and mundaneness. Surely he must be standing far off, not wanting intimacy, because he's displeased. And at moments like this, 
I want to suggest we are probably spending far too much time looking at ourselves and not enough time looking at reminders of God's graciousness, of how he dwells among his people, things like the Ark of the Covenant. When we look at the Ark, when we look at the atonement cover, we see that God has always dwelt among his people on a throne of grace. And for those who come in humility, brokenhearted, saddened by our failures, there is always, he has always had the, the desire to forgive. He has come on a throne of mercy so that he can forgive. No matter how far we have fallen short of his law and commandments. In fact, God knows our sin and inadequacy far better than we do because we see the tip of the iceberg, but he sees the hulking mass below the waves. Yet he has always come to his people with a desire to cover over those failings. That has never changed. And since we now have the perfect place of atonement in the body and blood of Jesus, who has presented himself before God's throne in heaven to cover over all of our sins, how can God stand far off from us? How can he not be intimate with his discouraged people? When Christ has done that. So when we feel discouraged by the inadequacy of our lives, when God feels far off, seems to be far off and not present, not intimate, I want to suggest we should be quicker to take our eyes off ourselves and quicker to look up at our God. Think of the ark as a visible representation of how God dwells among his people on a throne of grace. And then think of the Lord Jesus to whom it points and know that your sins and failings are covered over. As a result, God is living in you by his spirit at this very moment, whether you feel it or not. You are as intimate with God as you could be this side of glory. And so I wonder if we spent even half as much time focusing on these things as we do on ourselves. Might we start to feel more assured of the reality of God's presence with us? Don't you think that it might warm our hearts? so that we begin to enjoy the intimacy that we already have. God always did and always will live among his people on a throne of grace. Let's take a minute in quiet to marvel at that, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that these signs, these symbols speak so clearly of your gracious intentions toward your people, your desire to come among us, and the way that you come in mercy to forgive 
Father, please impress these things upon our hearts. Help us to be more convinced of them. Help us to believe them more with more assurance so that we might rejoice in the reality of your presence with us by your spirit. That we might enjoy the intimacy that we have with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.